Hello, and welcome to Banking Transform. I'm your host, Jim Maroos, founder and CEO of the Digital Bank Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. Consumers want their financial providers to provide integrated experiences that leverage insights to create engagement. To accomplish this, financial institutions need to build the data infrastructure and analytic capabilities that can be applied across the entire customer journey. Personalization must become a strategic priority, using data to create differentiated value exchange with a customer in real time. I'm excited to have Jim Stapleton, Senior Vice President of Epsilon on the show today. Jim will share how banks and credit unions can deepen relationships by understanding customer behaviors and offering timely solutions. So financial institutions must support a business plan that prioritizes customer centricity as opposed to product centricity. This includes, but is not limited to, rethinking and automating back office processes, leveraging modern technologies, upgrading data and analytics capabilities, communicating with contextual personalization, and prioritizing both speed and scale of customer interactions. So Jim, let's start by defining what you believe is meant by personalization. Obviously, we're talking about more than simply putting a name on a communications piece. Yeah, it's a great question, Jim. Um, And I would tell you that my thinking on that answer has evolved uh, over the last few months. I had always thought about it, by the way, being relegated specifically to the marketing activity of, of banks and credit unions. Um, More and more, I'm I'm wondering, why are we keeping this intelligence captive to one department and not infusing our knowledge of consumers and their emerging needs, okay? Yep. Which is very different than targeting criteria, right? I mean, we're talking about like, what do they need based on where they are in their life stage, perhaps a, a, a inflection point in their life stage is typically when their real needs arise. So being able to trigger off that, that's that's what I think of when I think of data-driven personalization is not here's, you know, I've got to push a thousand, you know, checking accounts this week. Uh, who can I go target them? And starting really with the consumers, particularly the ones you're currently serving yep. and saying, what are their needs? I know a lot about them. I can know a lot more, you know, through my first party data. I can lo- can really round out that view with a robust third party data augment to get a holistic view that should give me a pretty good idea of where they are in their life stage and potentially an inflection point that's occurring. I'll give an example. Um, so if, if you were able to discern that someone is having a baby, right? There's gonna be a new baby in the household. That should give you some indication that potentially this could be the first child. All of a sudden their needs and their, their financial needs have just changed. They want, you know, they're going to start thinking about things like life insurance, which they didn't think before. Um, they're going to start thinking about, you know, maybe I need to start thinking about 529s that I never thought about before. So rather than try to go get somebody who's, by the way, single, no kids, and mistakenly try to position these products in front of them, or take somebody who, by the way, is well past that life stage inflection point, has already got that cared for. You know, and to be honest, those aren't high churn products. I just mentioned 529s and life insurance, right? right? They tend to be set and forget. And so if those are your products that you're going after 
and you want to be there at the moment, I call it a jump ball moment in the marketplace, you've got to really be able to detect that and detect it in advance of it occurring and be there at that moment. That should be your new marketing lens, not I've got a bunch of SKUs and I need to find people to buy them, right? Yep. So don't start with the product, start with the individual and be looking for that data-driven intent signal that says, this is an always on campaign and this consumer just entered the zone of this campaign. Uh, so, yep. kind of, so that's what I think about. Now, what I said early is that all sounds really marketing oriented, but why aren't you doing the same thing in the care and feeding of your existing customers? And it could just be information. It could be the way you approach them. It could be, um, you know, what information appears on the website and on the banner ads, right? That is helpful and productive to them, given your knowledge and awareness of their life stage. Yep. So that's what I think about it as. And it, and it extends beyond marketing into the digital experience, the ongoing life cycle experience of the consumer. So it's interesting, Jim, you gave us so much to unpack here. So one of the things that would happen, and you said, you know, personalization really changes. You know, you think since COVID, where people were, you know, kind of sequestered into their houses, you know, people became more aware of things like Netflix and Hulu, Game became more aware of things like Instacart, all these digital engagements that really looked at data and provided insights into what you may do next. And I think financial institutions are really trying to play catch up. Now, the good news is you mentioned about the, the potential of the baby being born and, and you know, everybody there's if a financial institution is risk averse, they're going, yeah, but how about if we get this wrong? The reality is two things. Because of COVID, is customers realize that you're trying to help them with the data that you collect, and sometimes you're going to be off base a little bit. You can build that into the equation, and you can do it where you're not stepping so far out there. But in the same sense, what you're trying to do is they understand you're trying to serve them better. And and you know you said it really well around the fact that you know the the redefinition of personalization goes beyond the name and and really looks at how I'm going to engage, and also, and then we're going to get to this a little bit later, the deployment or democratization of data across an organization. So, you know, when we're talking about personalized experiences, and let's call it hyper-personalization, you know, one thing I'd like to see is, from your perspective, how do organizations go behind what I'm going to go beyond simple personalization to building greater engagement? Which I mean by that is, how do you make it so that a dialogue starts and, and it goes deeper than simply, oh, I sent something out that prompts this product that's customer centric, but really is pushing product still? Yeah, well, I mean, what we're seeing some of the, the best practices out of the banking community is, number one, you know, to your point, there's, there's actually a pretty solid expectation that you are meant to. I mean, it's a trusted relationship, yep. right? If your bank doesn't, you know, there's a very different expectation from a, a clothing retailer and, and how much you should know me and how much you should not know me, right? Then there is your banking relationship. I mean, if you really step back and think about it, banking is built on trust. I make a deposit. I trust when I come back to get it, it's still going to be there. Yep. That's a lot of trust, right? It's, it's fundamentally a trust-based relationship. Um, exactly why the banks are very concerned about losing any trust, right? And having any kind of reputational risk. This goes beyond regulatory concerns around privacy. 
you know, there's sort of a qualitative and you got to this sort of a, you know, how do I do this in a way where I am perceived as helpful, not creepy? You know, that's a great example. I mean, Disney, you know, when they first had those bands that that monitored where you're going in the park, it, consumers go, geez, do I really want that to happen until a character came up and named the child by name, if it's a talking character, obviously, and basically made the entire experience better through that. Now, right. mistakes are going to be made, but I, I think, you know, as you said, the, the balance between creepy and helpful, but we have so much data. And, you know, when you, you talk about the personalization experience, you know, when you look at lowest hanging fruit, you know, the things that, geez, guys, you got to hit this one out of the park. You talked about some product journeys instead of pushing the ch uh, checking accounts, trying to get a thousand in a month. What are some of the lower hanging fruits that you've seen out there that you go, you know what, guys? There's no losing this. I mean, it's going to win every time. And it's going to be one of these things that if you build this engagement, it's, and you mentioned it so well, and it builds trust. Because if you, mm -hmm. then it also gives you the flexibility to once in a while mess up. But the customer, just like Amazon, is not going to kill the relationship because you misjudge what they were going to try to buy. They're happy with all the things you helped them in the past. So what are some low-hanging fruit items that you see the financial yeah. services industry do? Yeah, so I think something that falls well inside the the safety comfort zone uh, for banks is when you you know first of all the average consumer interacts digitally with their bank every other day, okay, either through the the, the mobile app or the website, and there is marketing inventory in those interactions, meaning that the consumer is going to see something, okay. They're going to see that, you know, the banner, I like to use the banners, the rotating banners, right? Right when you log into the the mobile, you know, the, uh, the web app, you know, uh, web interface for the bank, they're going to see something. So a very safe zone is to have that next best offer insight. Uh, you know, the, most banks have a huge portfolio of services and, and abilities that they can deliver to a consumer. So if we use that sort of knowledge, that holistic, low latency knowledge of a consumer to understand that there's an inflection point in their life stages, that they're in need of something, there's, there's a really good and productive needs-based conversation to be had with that consumer, prioritize that topic as, as first in the five banner ads. There's nothing creepy about that. Right, right, right. So I think in terms of, of sort of effectiveness and safety, super simple first step is just website personalization based on next best offer driven by a holistic understanding of that consumer with, you know, again, low latency. In our case, you know, we use contextual browsing data, right, as a sort of an indicator. I mean, there's all kinds of wonderful third-party data that when aligned to the first-party data, can deliver on that very simple experience where you're, and, and by the way, suppress what I already have, you know, suppress what I already have. Don't, if I'm, if, I'm, if I already have your credit card, don't proposition me with the credit card. You know, yep. to me that says you're tone deaf. Now yep. you could say, well, that's super safe. Well, no, it's, it's actually tone deaf, right? You, you are displaying to me that you, you do not really know me and don't care to reflect what you ought to know about me in your communications with me. I can't think of anything that degrades trust and intimacy more than that. So I've kind of given you a simple, safe, 
enhancement, yep. you know, to a do and a very simple don't. You know, product ownership suppression, kind of a no-brainer, but you'd be surprised oh. how many don't do that. Well, you know, you you brought it up too, Jim, is that many institutions, and, and I'll give you a great example because you just brought it up, is my pers- my business bank reaches out to me, gives me an email, personalized. It talks about my small business relationship, personalized. And then it gets into something they try to sell. Okay, it was not bad. But then they say, oh, and by the way, if you aren't already an online banking customer, make sure you sign up for online banking. Oh, and if you haven't ever used mobile deposit capture, you know, be sure you try that as well. And all of a sudden right. you've lost all credibility because I have both. And what's interesting, and you you brought up is organizations. And you use both, Jim, right? right? And, and oh, every <laughs> every week. And the reality is what's really challenging is the financial institutions, I understand how it happens, because I started in financial institutions. So I understand what happens. This this part of the organization finally got their email slot because they only give up so many of them. And the organization says, I don't want to risk not sending it to somebody where I might be wrong, or I want to make sure I keep on pushing this one area. And you're going, do you understand what is from the consumer standpoint, how they're seeing this? And again, I'm going to get back to the pandemic. Every single consumer is smart enough to know what you can do, which is the most important, and what you should be able to avoid, as you mentioned. And, you know, so in that context, you know, using data to drive acquisition and cross-selling is not new. I mean, it goes back 40 years when I was a banker. Why mm-hmm. is targeting prospects and cross-selling across the customer journey still such a challenge? Yeah. Well, I, I think it comes down to, you know, a lot has changed, I guess, is what I would say about yeah. the availability of third-party data. Um, but it is still a challenge for a lot of banks to be able to stitch it all together. Um, and identity right? It's kind of a hot topic, but I, but I also say that most people are like identity. I mean, that's not going to help me achieve my results. You know, how can identity help? But it's such a key enabler. You know, when I think about the three major phases of marketing, you know, anticipating, which we've talked a lot about so far, right? Anticipating need, activating, and then measuring and optimizing, right? The feedback loop that goes all the way back to anticipation, right? How right were you and how can you improve your predictive models, um, your detection of of signals of intent, of life stage changes? So that's a nice virtuous cycle when you get it going. But you'll never get it going if you're operating in one identity space as you're you're trying to piece together third-party data and, and your assemblage of that first and third party data from disparate sources with dis- disparate identities. You never really, you try to Frankenstein it together and you've got incomplete data. Uh, you've got mismatches, misunderstandings of data. And then you activate it by moving it to a whole nother identity space for activation, maybe multiple identity spaces yep. for activation. And then you do your best to cobble together the measurement on the back end again encumbered by multiple identity spaces on that and different types of attribution. And, you know, I started with people, I've ended up with cookies and I can't reconcile it back to the individual, right? Yep. That identity, you know, having sort of, you know, I call it the man with three watches problem, right? If you've got a one identity map when you're trying to, you know, anticipate, analyze, detect need, another one when you go to activate and a 
Another one when you measure, you're the man with three watches who has not a clue what time it is, right? And so, I, you know, having a consistent identity that you then, you know, is sort of a platform, a foundation upon which you then layer in these three phases of marketing um, is a dramatic performance improver, um, especially if you're going to get into the space, not a spray and pray marketing, right? If it's spray and pray, you're kind of okay with all this, you know, dilution and lack of fidelity. But if you really want to get down to the individual and do things like journey orchestration, we talk about that, right? That journey orchestration is predicated on the notion that you res- that you maintain a view of an individual throughout the entire journey, that you are able to determine whether or not that individual has been touched by one of your touch points, and the ability to understand how they reacted or did not react to that touch point such that you can continue down kind of the if-then logic flow tree of a journey, right? There's a lot of predication there on you've got to have person-level identity in all three stages. And, and, and actually, it's not just a once-through. It's at every touch point. You have to have all three stages yep. and keep coming back. And, you know, so journey orchestration to me is like this wonderful air traffic control system, right, in which every consumer is a, an airplane and you're trying to route them, route them properly through a process, depending on how their level of engagement, their interest is, and you need clear identity throughout that entire process. So we're seeing, you know, we're seeing banks that are starting to get in credit unions that are starting to leverage that and starting to, you know, that's a key enabler that not a lot of people talk about, but in the absence of good, clear identity, you're never going to get very far with any of these techniques. Right. The sort of yep. state of the art that we all strive for becomes very, very difficult. I'm a financial institution and I want to do what you're saying. And, and it all sounds somewhat cumbersome and, and really difficult is taking data. Mm. And, you know, you work with a number of financial institutions. And one of the excuses that I know that financial institutions have is, yeah, we'd like w- to work with you. But our data is just a mess right now. It's in multiple places. We know we have it. It's not clean. It's it's not. It certainly doesn't include third party information. How does Epsilon help a, a financial institution go from garbage to something that's maybe not completely solved for everything, but usable? So, in other words, I, I can't right. I can't fix everything at once, but I got to start driving an ROI. But the worst excuse you hear is my data sucks because the reality is. There's no institution you started work with that they don't think their data sucked. How do you help organizations make it so they can leverage the data that's already internal to drive results? Yeah, great question. So, um, you know, we routinely onboard the first party data, right? That's the key. And I don't care how disparate it is. It can come in fragments and pieces. And, you know, they may not have, they may have a different database for lines of business, right? So, I mean, it could be an utter mess. All right. Yeah. Uh, they may not have complete contact. Oh, by the way, it usually is. I don't, you know, anybody yeah. who's listening to this, you know, they think they're the only institution that, you know, yeah. and, and you hear it all the time. Yeah, but you don't know our institution. Guess what? You have enough yeah, you clients. May still be, you, you may yeah. still be in the top quartile, yeah. Jim, I think is what <laughs> you're saying. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's 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 just the, the reality. Right. And a lot of that's legacy and, and where you came from, you know. Um, so anyway, we will take all that fragmented data. And we will onboard it into our identities, you know, core ID. You've probably heard about it. Yep. It's sort of yep. our identity map. 
Yep. Uh, and we've got a lot of techniques to, you know, contact complete. If you don't have complete PII for identity matching, we can we can kind of complete that to improve match rate and and the onboarding. And we'll bring that all and consolidate it. So it may be for the first time you've got a consistent cross line of business view, right? Of of a cons- of a consumer, which is pretty exciting sometimes just in and of itself before we've begun to overlay the third party data. But we, we've taken everything we license in third-party data, uh, for, whether it's our TSP data, you know, think of demographic type data, um, our digitally derived data, we can align into that same core. It's, it's pre-aligned basically into the core ID space. So you know, we can create this environment. The third-party data is already aligned to core ID, and then we can bring in the, the bank's first-party data. And suddenly they've got an environment where they've got a holistic view of their existing customers they also have a broad view of their prospects, um, so they can say, "Hey, these are not our customers," right. uh, and, right. and know a, a lot of information, you know, about that that prospective audience. Um, and like I was mentioning before, once we're in that core ID environment with that data, they can do all the analytics, the you know, really signals of intent, you know, derive the signals of intent, and then we've got direct bridges. Now, both obviously to our own DSP network for paid media activation, as well as a variety of other DSPs, where really we're still using that core ID natively, along with its underlying device map, yep. to be able to know that you're reaching these people. You know, once you've fallen in love with that audience expressed in core IDs, we're going to go activate those individuals, not the cookies, <laughs> but those people, yep. right? Th- through digital campaigns, we can also bring that back for their known customers for cross-selling back into their own channels. And then lastly, we can measure it back to the same core IDs, right? So you're still, you're, you're kind of, you've onboarded your data, you know who, who those individuals are. Um, you have decided which ones are just perfect for the you know the product, and you've identified their need, and and you're ready to go proposition them for a solution to it, and then you can immediately tell how they react, right? Yep. And that's the once through, and then you decide, hey, I want to do journey orchestration. Fantastic. You know, now we can keep that same core ID of of that individual throughout the entire journey, and really support your journey orchestration tools. Okay. Uh, so. That, you know, that's and the easy step, the easy first step is just onboard the data, begin to understand your customer holistically, not only across your lines of business, but with all this third party data, you know, kind of rounding out. So you really understand not just your narrow view of the interaction with the consumer, but what they're doing with the rest of their life outside of their interaction with you. Okay, so I'm the same financial institution and you've now convinced me that you can hold my hand and, and actually make my data impactful and I can do something with it. But you know what? This is all bigger than a bread box. And mm-hmm. I need to find the budget and the resources internally to support something, but I can't support everything. Does Epson give me the capability to say, if my major initiative today is generating more loans, that you can say, yeah. I can compartmentalize your solution to make it easier to absorb easier to pay for, easier to deploy, and quicker to deploy simply for a compartmentalized part of the business before I get to the broader perspective? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You know, what comes to mind when you mention that, Jim, is a really nice, tight, little project that we do for for clients where they will say, I want more loans, like you just said, right? And we'll say, great, send send us your last 
several campaigns with the conversion file, right? In other words, who yep. actually took, yep. who took, who didn't take. We're going to do, we can load that into our system and then look at all the third-party data attributes of the, uh, so just simply, here's my customer base, here's who took the offer, here's who did not. And we'll look backwards at 15 months worth of history and say, what made the takers different than the non-takers? All right. And build a propensity score. And then we'll say, give us your next audience that you want us to score. And we'll score it and send it back to you. You activate it, you know, it through your traditional channels. So you don't need kind of the entire system. You can just use sort of the third-party data insights. Now we call it signals of intent. Yep. We can help sort of just propensity score an audience based on empirical data of history. And what I love about it, Jim, is marketing used to be where we, you know, the, the marketer would say, hmm, what are the attributes that I think make up my target audience? And it's human beings who are all autobiographical, whether we want to admit it or not. Yep. You know, and we're really just, it's it's like a um, survey of one. Yep. Honestly, right? Yep. And maybe your intuition is excellent and maybe your intuition is not. Maybe it's excellent for a very small subgroup of your potential audience. And the good news is you'll, because you used your intuition, that audience, you know, you'll have some success with, but you might be missing others. You may be misunderstanding what are the needs that led people to take your product. And so when we do this regression analysis, we don't presuppose anything. Yeah. All right. We basically say, let the data speak for itself. Right. So it's very data driven. And, and you know, the, what's interesting is we don't talk about it much in the industry, but when you move from a product to a customer centric view, you take what you just described there on the loan side, as opposed to having maybe two loan programs a year, what you've done is you've taken the data and you're finding all the triggers that indicate a person's going to want a loan and you're doing it in smaller incremental wins, but over every day of the year. So the right. end result Always is on, much Jim. greater. Right. And, and we forget about the fact that moving from product to customer centricity means I'm going to be there when you're about to want something. And I'm going to mm -hmm. get a greater end result, but I can do it at scale because it's a machine. I mean, it's mechanizing, automating the process to automating. a degree that your yeah. results are going to be there. You know, you know, you talked about this earlier, too. Um, when we talk about, let's say, I'm going to pivot a little bit to, let's say, a new account customer. Those new account customers we've seen are, if they're digitally, if they've opened the account digitally, they're probably harder to cross-sell only because we haven't built a really good digital cross-sell process in many organizations. But more importantly, we, we don't have the human interaction. So many organizations say, well, that's why I want to drive them into the branch. But when you talk about spreading the data insights out and your redefinition of personalization that you did, how mm -hmm. important is it today for institutions to democratize data insights across the entire organization's for both the internal departments, but even more importantly, the external resource you have. Let's take, for example, branch employees. How powerful is it if an organization takes what you've just described, which is next most likely product, the next most likely purchase, whatever it may be, most next most likely service, maybe not even a product, mm -hmm. and having the humans in the branches that right now are, are really underutilized, actually use that data to reach out 
and do what they're best at, which is engage customers? Yeah, great question. So I immediately think of uh, maybe three concentric rings, right, around the data. So once you've done all the you know wonderful thing we've already talked about, consolidating the data, rounding it out with third-party data, now the question is who has access to it, right, inside the bank? And you know we we definitely have clients where really it's just the data scientists and the analytics teams that literally have direct access. Even you know people you would consider marketers, right? who don't know coding and analytics tools, right. um, don't have direct access. They have a analytics buddy they might be you know, aligned with that if they come up with the right request, they can submit a request and two weeks later get an answer, You know, maybe two months, right? But the idea of iterating that way or exploring into data or you know, you know, getting your hands dirty with the data as a marketer just doesn't happen. Right now, now we've we've uh, deployed this capability that we, you know. So when you said data democratization, it's exactly the way we describe it with our with the clients who are adopting this capability. We call discovery, which is very simply a GUI interface, drag and drop that a marketer can use to explore into thousands of attributes of first and third party data, begin to formulate hypotheses, be, be see sizing of audience get exposure to the types of data that's available. When you have thousands of attributes, by the way, that's not intuitive, right? I mean, you need a data dictionary, you need some familiarity with it, you know? So there's definitely some handholding that goes with this discovery tool, but they can start to just interact and size and and get their own hands on the data. Uh, But it's because it's sort of the equivalent between, you know, programming and C++ and using Excel, okay? We're basically, we have launched Excel, (laughs) <laughs> for yep. data-driven yep. marketing, okay? And make made it available so marketers can get those real-time insights, write better briefs, figure out what, what creative you know influences they should have based on the profiling of an audience, all those things in real-time, dashboarding, really cool, really cool system. We'd love to do a demo for you at some point, Jim. Yeah, I think you're going to be blown away with it. You know, it's interesting because, again, you're multiplying the power of the data. And I, I used to say, you know, it doesn't do any good to engage with a company like Epsilon simply to make better reports, to find out what I know about my customer base. What's really important is to take it further and say, how do I let my customers know I know about them? You know, we talked about it before the, the podcast started that my frustration is when my financial institution I know knows so much about my transactions and what I need from anything that happens. And yet, they don't use that to my advantage. They they know it. They just don't deploy it. And there's many reasons why. But I think right. that's a huge missed opportunity. And it's interesting because it's really the difference between what I'm going to call the new bank, the digital bank, and the legacy bank, You know, it, mm-hmm. whereby certain things are done the way they've always been done. And then some of the other areas are saying, no, we can do this differently and get a much better result. So you know, when mm-hmm. you look at data and you look at both third-party data and internal data, how important is transaction data today and near real-time engagement to the overall success of a communications process? Yeah. So, you know, everything I've described about defining signals of intent, and maybe I wasn't explicit, but third-party data is certainly a really cool sort of added ingredient. Yep. But first-party data should not be thought about as static and irrelevant in that process, right? There are things you can get out of the first-party data interactions 
that are equally viable candidates. And, and, and when I said we look back, you know, and sort of let the data speak for itself, what emerges is usually a combination of things you pick up on in the third party data that's a that ha- is a good predictor of whatever outcome you're trying to create, right? But the first party data too, it's it's a it's a combination of both is what we see pop and emerge. So you can imagine if we're looking at thousands of first and third party attributes, you know, maybe there's six to 10 variables that start to emerge that used in combination could, could form a really strong signal. And it might be that there's of the 10, maybe six are third party and four are first. So being able to expose your your modeling, you know, to all of those variables is really important. Jim, you also, you know, you were asking about another ring of, you know, democratizing the data. And I do want to address it, right? And it's sort of what I would call the bionic, you know, the bionic uh, nature of data. Where how do you enable human beings? How do you enable them to be smarter? I I immediately think of, you know, for wealth, for some of our banks that have wealth management, where they've got financial advisors. And there's a really strong desire. I mean, and I think most of us that are do wealth management as consumers, uh, we love our app. You know, we love the website. You know, that's sort of our day-to-day, just yep. kind of keeping an eye on things. But there, you know, you want to check in with a, a person and, you know, should I, should I rebalance? What's your view of this crazy market we're in? And being able to inform those individuals who are at, being asked to do more and more and more, right? right? Their portfolios. Right. They're being stretched thinner and thinner to cover more and more clients. And so th- that level of intimacy and, person- and personalization is under, you know, is challenged a little bit, right? If I've got 300 portfolio clients versus 100, you know, my knowledge of Jim and my recollection of our right. last conversation yep. and, you know, is diminished. So being able to enable, data enable that individual you know, so that when they get ready to sit down with, you know, for you, for your, you know, quarterly or every six month check-in, they've got a, a summary of some really helpful data that we can extract both first and third party to brief you quickly, right? So that your comments and your advice can be in context with a broader set of data. Now, all of a sudden, you're a bionic financial advisor, right? Rather than just struggling on your own with, you know, relying on nothing but your own memory, of that client and and hopefully, you know, being able to personalize your message and your advice. You know, it's interesting, Jim, because another dynamic of this is wealth managers, branch tellers, branch managers, all in the back of their mind are saying, is digital going to replace me? And by democratizing data that you just described, you're empowering them to be part of the digital solution. So mm-hmm. what you do is, is subtly, Make them very aware that, no, you're part of this digital future. We need you more than ever. You know, the, the we didn't hire tellers because they could balance well. We hired them because they could communicate with customers well. If mm-hmm. we engage them on the onboarding process, if we give the tools to the wealth manager, they realize, oh, data and 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 digital can empower me to do better, and I am part of the equation. So they're less likely to, to subtly undermine some of our our digital efforts you know what's interesting too is when we look at the power of transactional data we can't just look at the the transfer of data all the traditional money data you know one thing that comes to mind for me is a a couple transactions one was 
on an ongoing basis for the last seven years, I have transferred money from one financial institution, my business account, to my personal account twice a month by writing checks and taking a picture and depositing them because the two organizations don't play well together. For whatever reason, it's just cumbersome. So I'm doing it a different way. Well, both institutions should be able to see that on a regular basis, I'm doing this, and I'm sure there's a better way for me to implement that. Secondly, and, and this is one of these case studies that you hear on the street, a financial institution said to me once, they go, you know, we all got fat and happy, really happy with the, with the checks that came out from the government. He said, what we did, instead of just getting fat and happy about what we were getting deposited, we looked and said, what happened for the next week after those checks came out? And we realized that organizations like Robinhood, organizations like um, Acorns and other organizations were getting massive transfers. Now, while we ended up better than we were before the, the change, what we missed was all this insight into what people were doing behind the scenes as they expanded the relationships. And you know, we, we've talked about this in the past, and I've talked to your organization about this, that while we still, as financial institutions, have the accounts, more and more customers are finding ways to diversify their holdings through different fintechs and different big techs and even different financial institutions. So while we may feel like we're not having attrition, we're not keeping the relationship. How does Epsilon help organizations and I'm not just saying by cross-sell, but how do you look at data to say, how do we get these customers to be more our customers as opposed to simply us being the storehouse of wealth? Yeah. Well, I mean, clearly just understanding, you know, I'll go back to where we started, right? Yeah. Trust is built when you can anticipate and meet my needs. And the trust that, especially the major institutions that I think you're referring to here, right? Yeah. Our big retail banks here in the U.S., uh, there is already such an implied trust. I mean, they start from such a great footing. It's one they've earned, right? That they have a great brand. There's phenomenal trust. I don't think consumers leave due to a lack of trust, or I don't think nope. they diversify nope. due to a lack of trust. It, it's about just being there. In their, I think they got first right of refusal is the way I would put it, Jim, that if you can give me an incentive, anticipate my need, put your product in front of me, make it competitive. I'm more likely to keep my relationships simple. You know, we're all time constrained. There's great integration in these products and services. Their ability, you know, the, just your point about moving money between institutions, not always easy, getting right. easier, right? Yep. But man, if I can consolidate it to where my wealth management, my checking, my savings, my credit card, all under one roof, I can pay my credit card bill automatically between the accounts, I can have one app, look at my wealth management, look at my banking at the same time. Maybe there's a budgeting app. I mean, there is definitely some synergy in keeping it all under one roof. So I think it's just, you know, in some cases, if you're not paying attention to the jump ball in the market, if you've got a consumer and you're not detecting that they're in market for something and getting in front of them, that's on you. Yep. Uh, that's on you as a bank, right? And so, you know, we, we you know, think about you've got a checking and credit card customer. If we could help you determine that they're checking out mortgage rates, right? Yep. Or, or better yet, I'll give you this example, Jim. We've actually done regression analysis on, on mortgage. And believe it or not, six months before mortgage, you know, you know what you see pop? An interest in home decorating. 
Oh, yeah. Isn't that interesting, right? Yeah. I don't know if that's intuitive to oh, you. You're right. Yeah. It starts with home decorating. Then you suddenly realize, you know, then you get to remodeling. And then you go, you know what? The roof needs maybe replacing. I maybe I should just move. Yeah. Yeah, right? This oh, is, yeah. This is too hard, right? And either that thing's going to land in a HELOC because they're going to do a, you know, a renovation, yep. or it's going to land in a mortgage. And you as their bank today, ho hosting their, their uh, checking and credit card, could be aware of that six months before it happens and start to cultivate awareness, consideration, you know, prop and make a proposal to them, right? As a right. loyal client, you know, we're offering you this special, you know, no fee origination rate, whatever it is, right? It's yours to lose is what I would say. You've yep. got primacy, you've got trust, uh, and you've got the synergy of simplicity um, that you can deliver. You just got to be there to compete for it. Yep. And don't, don't let the fintech sweep in and grab it because they are looking at that. You know, there's a jump ball and you're still on the ground when the ball's in the air. You know, it's a great example. And I, I some of the, my listeners probably have heard this story before, but when I bought my Jeep, um, I decided that, you know, I'm going to test the marketplace. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a couple of test drives, which anybody who's not aware of this, when you do a test drive, the dealer usually is going to do a credit bureau check, which doesn't impact your credit bureau, but it gives them information as to, are you willing, are you able to buy what you think you're going to buy? But what happens, though, is when you do that, there's a credit bureau impact that every institution could find out I'm in the marketplace for a car, or at least I'm test driving them. Well, that is why, you you know, when I was buying my car, every dealer, every manufacturer reached out to me trying to sell their vehicle. And they were really close, by the way, as far as the kind of vehicle I was going to buy. They saw the kind of range, what, what kind of vehicle I was looking at, and they give me one similar to that. What was very disturbing was not one financial institution reached out to me and said, by the way, if you're in the marketplace for a car, we can help you. That, that would yeah. not have disturbed me. And in fact, I kept on putting feelers out every way I knew that could have been tracked by a financial institution, social media, doing more test drives. I even, this is the funny moment, is that I even wrote a check for the down payment on the car on my personal bank saying, I know this bank tracks checks. I wonder if they pick up on that. Zero. Now, what was interesting, you talked about it, simplicity and speed. What did I end up doing? Instead of walking the door of my finance institution, I got a floor plan loan because I know now floor plan loans are not just by one institution. They do a, a, a shopping for you to get you the best possible rate. I ended up using Ally, who was not part of my decision set, but it got me my loan quicker and easier than trying to give any more signals out to my, my big top five bank. Yeah. You know, the, there's so many opportunities out there. And I think this is something that organizations have to realize is that with the amount of experience you have, you have hundreds upon hundreds of clients. You get these case studies. You get these success stories. If I, as a financial institution, was going to say, you know what, I want to engage with you, but I need to get my return on investment in the six-month period from now, six months from now. How quickly could you get up and running? And could you actually satisfy what I'm looking for, which is I need some easy wins that prove your mm -hmm. points in the marketplace. Absolutely, Jim. You know, I'll go back to that uh, that signals of intent project. Yes. Yep. You know, we're looking at a three month turn on that, right? And yeah. and most of that's going to be paperwork around. You know, I'm you know <laughs> what we're going to do with your data, yep. getting approval yep. to take yep. in your you know the movement of first party data, right? Yep. Um, is is the highest burden. It's a fairly simple thing. You know, probably the actual technical work time is weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yep. 
A lot of it is just discussion, setup, uh, gaining uh, approvals. And I guess the final thing I should mention to you, Jim, is uh, we actually, you know, we obviously it's a super, you know, privacy, security, regulation, all three absolute table stakes for everything we've been talking about, yep. right? And everyone's going to go, oh my gosh, you've got to be hitting one or more of those tripwires somewhere along the way with all the cool stuff you guys have been talking about. Um, I just want to assure your listeners that we have met and exceeded all three of those. And, and I would argue that's actually sort of mm-hmm. our core competency and differentiator. We even have a solution where we can onboard your first party data without you ever having your PII leave our four walls. It's probably a topic for a whole nother podcast yeah. for us, Jim. Yeah. But I'll just leave that as a, as a teaser. Um, so we are super conscious of the, of the need to secure bank consumer information uh, no one wants to be breached. No one wants to appear in the, the front cover of the Wall Street Journal. Uh, we already established the fact that banks' fundamental business is built on trust. And if I can't trust you with my data, why would I trust you with my money, right? If you can't keep that secure, how are you going to keep my money secure? So, you know, trust is super important. Privacy continuing to change here in the U.S. and across the world, uh, staying ahead of that. And then, of course, regulatory requirements you know, we have an amazing number of fabulous clients in this industry that we are, you know, shoulder to shoulder, ensuring that they establish and maintain a very strong profile on all three of those three of those areas. So, Jim, thank you so much for being with us today. You know, again, I want to emphasize to our listeners, it sounds like apple pie and, and all the best things in the world. But the thing is, it's only good if you actually do something. And uh, we were talking to Jim and I were talking before the podcast that, you know, a lot of organizations go, you know, we can do that. We can do that. We can do that. The reality is there's no doubt you can. But this is a great example where partnering with a third party provider that's gone down the route, has found the pitfalls, found things that don't work very well, found things that work very well. If you want to bring a return on investment and improve your customer experience, and as Jim has mentioned multiple times, the trust level in your organization then find a partner that can get you down that path fast. By the way, you can always unwind those relationships. And I keep on saying, you know, biggest challenge now is paralysis of analysis. Gone are the days you can evaluate a partner in an 18 to 24 month period because that is lost opportunity. It is better to maybe make a couple of missteps, make a couple of mistakes today and get it implemented and test the waters because everything you do is going to help the learning curve on what you can do down the for in the future. Jim, I thank you and Epsilon for this podcast and really hope that people say, you know what, I, I actually have to take action because that's the most important thing right now. Thanks, Jim, for your time today as well. And uh, a great dialogue. Enjoyed it and look forward to more to come. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Banking Transform, the winner of three international awards for podcast excellence. If you enjoyed today's show, be sure to give us a five-star rating on your preferred podcast platform. Also, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and the research we're doing for the Digital Bank Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Hasledge, audio engineer, Sean Roe Hoffman, and video producer, Will Pritz. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, remember... Digital technology provides the opportunity to bring personalized solutions to every single customer individually and on time.
The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.